The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 161 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for checking in with us again this week. We really appreciate it. Uh, We've got an amazing show for you, but before we get into it, I do want to thank a new reviewer on Apple Podcasts. Uh, The username is AnimalsRule123. Thank you so much for your five-star review and your kind words. It sure does help for uh, other people who are looking for good, uplifting content. These reviews just help us a ton to show up on searches, so thank you. My guest on the show this week, Lark Galley has lived a life of just so much pain and tragedy and yet joy and love. And she has a wonderful message. She's been through things that I really can't imagine. I don't want to imagine. And yet she's come out the other side of them with just being a a true champion of uh, all things good. And I'm so grateful that we were able to meet in person. And I'm so grateful there are people like Lark out there. You will just be amazed by this conversation. I do need to warn you, we do get into some pretty heavy themes. So please, uh, if you have younger listeners around, listener discretion is certainly advised. And this week in my Latter-day life, if I just had five more minutes with Johnny, it's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today here in the Latter-day Live studios, and we are back to live, which is awesome. It is my pleasure to have here in the studio with me uh, someone who's been through such tremendous pain and yet is taking that pain and turning it into something positive in the lives of so many. Lark Galley, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate it. I'm so glad to meet you and so happy that we connected. Um, your story is a story of a lot of uh, a lot of trauma, and we're going to get into that. But we want to get to know you first. So tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up. I was born in Utah and moved all over. I went to a different school every year of my life, and it was because my father was just this adventurous spirit and always f- finding this adventure. Um, unbeknownst to us as children, he was undiagnosed bipolar. He wasn't. Mm diagnosed until he was in his 50s. And so there was a lot of instability. And yet, because my father could often be very fun and engaging, I always thought we were having an adventure. As an adult now, um, so I mean, we we have uh, some bipolar running in my family. There were things that now we can look back and we didn't see it at the time. Part of it was that this was the 70s and 80s and bipolar wasn't as understood. But also part of it was, uh, that's just how they are. Are you able to look back and see some things now that make you go, oh, okay, I understand? Exactly. And then my father actually inherited this bipolar mental illness from his mother, who inherited it from her mother. And it affected a lot of her family, um, my couple of aunts and uncles, uh, several of my cousins. So it's quite pervasive, even though it wasn't talked about for a long time. But uh, I look at a couple of my nephews and I'm like, oh, yeah, like yeah. raging, you know, yeah. issues. 
just all over the place. But looking back at my father now, I can now see why he was really excitable at some times and other times he would just be really quiet and he was always searching mm. for something to sort of fill that emptiness and, and to take away the demons, I guess. Sure. Uh, so, and was your whole family Latter-day Saint? Yes. Up until uh, we moved to Tennessee when I was six years old and we came into a very small city. We were in a branch, 45 people in the branch. My family was nine of those. So I was the oldest of seven kids. The last three are identical triplet girls. Oh my goodness. When they were born, I was five. So think of seven kids age five and under. And my mom was wow. just a trooper. She just rolled with it. Wait. Yes. Seven kids, five and under. Triplets. The last three were triplets. Oh, Lark, I can't even imagine. So wow. four kids in diapers. Oh, that's a, lot. that's a lot. But you know what? We just thought it was normal. So when I was about seven or so and the, the triplets were one and two, I'd put them in my little red flyer wagon and mm. uh, haul them around the town. So this little teeny town in Tennessee. And people would come out and look at them, and they're in their matching snowsuits. And, and I just didn't understand why people were so excited, because in my six- and seven-year-old mind, I'm thinking, don't you have a set at home, too? <laughs> I love that. Now, you say that you were active, and your family was active until that point. Was that a, was that a shift? That was a big shift. It, it came out of nowhere. Uh, probably part of the reason my dad moved us across country, and he just stood up in testimony meeting and said, this is who I am. This is my family and you'll see them, but you won't see me. And it shocked my mom to death. That was Your mom didn't know that was coming. Not a clue. Nope, not a clue. And he did it in a testimony meeting. He did. Yeah, it was awesome. That was just one of many times he felt compelled to stand up in testimony meeting and just like say stuff that <laughs> was which, weird. Which you're describing the nature of bipolar. Yes. I mean, that's the nature. Yes. And, and we look back, especially like as a teenager, and he would come occasionally to church on testimony meetings so he could stand up and say things that were just outrageous. And of course, you know, as a as a kid, you just want to crawl under the pew and die, right? Yeah. That must have been so hard for you. Did it ever make you not want to go to church? Not want to go to church. I just thought, oh, I hope these people understand that my father is really strange. You know, yeah. we talk about strange, but now here it is. Not so much that I didn't want to go to church. It's almost that I wanted my father to not come to church. I wanted right. him to stay home. Right, because maybe his motivations yes. for being there with you. Yes. Yeah. Oh, Lark, that is really tricky. What were you into in uh, in high school? And by the way, where you moved around a lot. Yes. Is, do you consider Tennessee home? Do you have a, a home base you know or what? no home base? In the last uh, 24 Five years I've lived in South Jordan. Hmm. And so actually I consider that my home. But before then I didn't have anything. Even hmm. you know, when your college asks you to put down a hometown, yeah. I didn't have a hometown. <laughs> I, did, I had nothing. So I just wow. had moved out. Tennessee was between ages six and twelve, and even a year and a half of that, I was half of the year where I was in Arizona and the other half of the year I or another year I was in Southern California. And it had a lot to do with during those years, my parents would, um, they would argue, they would have issues. And I think it had a lot to do with my dad's bipolar. He just, he was pushing my mom away in, in many ways. And, uh, and so they would separate and then they'd get back together and mm. it was all this instability. And it wasn't until after my parents actually filed for divorce that my father said to my mom, why did you divorce me? And my mom said, because you wanted me to. Sort of like he had forgotten 
what was going oh. on it and and so it's really it's really sad in many ways that is very very sad mm-hmm. yeah so what were what were you into in high school with all this commotion and moving around were you able to kind of create an identity for yourself in some ways i i hung out with almost every crowd and you know mm-hmm. i didn't have a specific group that i ran with every time i would move i had to find new friends and so sometimes i was very lonely uh, a lot of times it was just lonely and i and i was often by myself occasionally had one or two friends maybe um, I did almost everything. I was at different times. I was in the drama mm. uh, clubs. I played basketball. I pe- played uh, volleyball. I was on the track team. So different, different things, and just tried different experiments. And uh, a friend of mine had mentioned to me about foreign exchange, and we're talking thirty-five years ago. So you yeah. know, th- this was beyond anything that no was normal. Email, this is no, no, yeah. is not normal. Can't right? look it up on the web. Right, sure. exactly. And I just had this. I think I was supposed to go because I just had this mm. dwelling in my mind. I ended up going to Sweden, which is where my father's mother, her family, is from. There, mm. coming to live with a a wonderful family who had two daughters. They weren't LDS, and they certainly thought that I was, you know, very strange because (laughs) on Sundays I would get on the bus and subway and train, and I would ride for an hour and a half to go to church for three hours, and then an hour and a half home. And so, you know, Europeans, they don't ever go to church except Easter and Christmas. And so for me to go almost every Sunday that I was gone, and I look back on that, I was 16, you know, what 16-year-old who doesn't have to go to church really yeah. gets up and does that? And I, I attribute it to my mother who, all those years, mm. taking seven kids to church by herself. And they're, yeah. we were little. And she would make sure, you know, and when we were out in these branches or, or in wards outside of Utah back, you know, once again, right. 40, 50 plus years ago, then it was up to an hour drive. To get to mm. church, and sometimes this was before the block, and so it would be sacrament meeting and Sunday right. school. They Twice were separate. On a Sunday, yes, a Tuesday night or a Wednesday. Night. Exactly, and I look at her sacrifice, and so I, I just I thought of that, and I just want to you know let parents know that these things sink in their kids' minds, whether or not they they think <laughs> that it does. <laughs> oh, I love that. And so then, uh, what did you do between high school and your mission? So I went to the college, to, to University of Utah. Okay. I lived with my dad and stepmother at that time in, in Salt Lake oh, City. Oh, your dad remarried. Okay. Dad remarried. He actually had three wives, um, mm. unfaithful to all three, and, and ended up dying uh, divorced, you know, and, and yeah. kind of lonely, honestly, oh. you know. And once again, it was choices, but it, I think it had to do with his illness. All right. So you went to the University of Utah. What, what was your plan? What did you want to study? So I was... Very focused. I knew that I I had a plan since I was sixteen. I had this plan, and I was going to uh, graduate. At, when I entered school, I didn't know what I wanted to study, mm. but over time, it became uh, political science, international relations, because I had spent that um, that year in Sweden, right? And that family they normalized life for me. I didn't know what normal was, <laughs> and living with them, I'll give an example. We had dinner together every night, and like the parents actually engaged in conversation with us. And my my Swedish father would ask me about my day and took interest in myself. And so, I just I just think that I learned a new way to connect with a father figure 
that I never had before. And so sometimes we think, oh, you have to spend all of this time or money with a child, and you really don't. What matters is that 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 child feels that you care about them and what they're doing. And that that was life-changing for me. Um, We had food in the cupboard. We we did things, you know, like there that the house was warm, it was heated all the time, and we weren't freezing, and we didn't have to share nine people in one bathroom. Uh, we, I had my own bedroom for the first time in my entire life, and that might be surprising, but up until that point, I mean, I had been sharing sometimes with all seven kids, uh, sometimes with with a sister and a brother. Mm. So just the do you understand how heartbreaking this all sounds? Like I am, my heart is breaking for young you, that having food in the the cupboards and and having heat, and someone telling you they care and listening to you, that that was new is so heartbreaking. And yet, like I said, I just felt like my my life was an adventure. Um, I knew my mother loved me in in you know she would do anything for me, and this is a heartbreaking thing as well. Is I can remember, because I was the oldest, even though I was very young, I was oftentimes my mom's confidant, because yeah. we lived far away from her family. There was there was nothing. I mean, to make a phone call was almost unheard of, right? Back back in the day. It was Long distance. Yes, yeah. yes. And so she would confide in me as a very young age. And I remember one time she went and donated plasma so that we could have money for food that week. And that was very typical. And it wasn't that my father was, he he was very well educated. He was very smart. He had a master's degree. It's mm. just that he had a really hard time sticking with a specific career, sure. a specific job. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So uh, you do some time at the University of Utah. Mm-hmm. Graduate, and I put my I had put my papers in. I went right from graduating in December to going into the MTC in January, and I was headed back to Sweden, which I was not happy about because I wanted to go to uh, oh. to Asia to learn a different country, <laughs> already, uh, different language. I already spoke Swedish. I didn't feel I needed to go back. But it was the best thing. First of all, I realized that it doesn't matter where you serve. You're doing the same thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not about you. It's about just right. showing up and right. serving. The second thing is going to Sweden at that time was like going home. I had my Swedish family, my non-Mormon Swedish family yeah. meet me at the airport. Oh, and cool. my mission president and his wife were kind of shocked. They were old school. And mm. they were like, what is going on here? You know, They just <laughs> thought that was so strange. And I, I already spoke the language. I already loved the food. I knew the people. Mm. It was like going home. And it was it was a beautiful experience. And I just came to love the people even more. So you come home. Where did you go home to? So I came home to Sandy. Um, I lived with my father and stepmother again. They had moved to Sandy at that point. And I was home for, I want to say, maybe four, three to four months just to get my feet underneath me. And I got a job working um, for the state of Utah, which is where I had interned before mm. I left on my mission. And I moved out as soon as I could. I was able to get my 
grandparents to co-sign for me on a car, and I moved into an apartment with a girlfriend that I had known before. I know at some point you meet a, a young man here somewhere along the line. Yes, and and that was an interesting story too, because at that point I was uh, 24, which, and unmarried, Back in the day, you know, I might as well have been yeah. dead. Back in the day, yeah, maybe. And what a terrible stereotype we had back then, for Pete's sake. Uh-huh. I'm glad we've overcome that part of yes. it, because that's ridiculous. Exactly. And I still felt like there was lots to do in life, right? Oh, I, yes. I wasn't feeling the pressure. but my, You were right. My mom and grandmother were feeling pressure for me, and I'm like, well, I'm not. Anyway, silly. I met someone, uh, a, a man, he uh, was in the singles ward, and he was a convert. We got married in the temple. And uh, over the next couple years, we moved to the Bay Area. We were married for about not quite eight years. And what happened there was, once again, completely blindsided to me. Um, We moved from my career to San Francisco. He was a flight attendant for United Airlines. Mm. He he was Portuguese, and he spoke spoke Portuguese. So he would fly to um, Brazil for that was his his Mm. leg. And I thought our marriage was good. We, you know, he was gone a lot, but when we were together, we would read scriptures together as a couple. We would pray as a couple. We would attend the temple regularly, go to church together. I thought we were good. And we had been trying to have a child about three years, nothing happening. And I was devastated. Just, you know, hey, isn't this righteous? Isn't this happening? And nothing happening. And finally, I get pregnant, and I'm very excited. He comes home from his one of his uh, flights, and I said, I'm so excited. We're pregnant. And he just said, I don't want to be a dad, and I don't want to be married to you. And I had no idea this was coming. Nothing. Oh, and, my gosh. Yes. Mark. I know. So, like, this is just... Here you are pregnant. <laughs> You're giving him the best news yes. ever. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be a dad, and I don't want yes. to be married to you. Yes. And um, we were together a few more months. I was devastated. I was saying, can't we work this out? What's going on? And as my counselor said, it takes two <laughs> to be married, you know. And oh. he basically just picked up his stuff when I was six months pregnant, packed his stuff, and left. And this was before, you know, the whole cell phone era. Um, I had no way to get in touch with him. I had no no idea where he went. He just was gone. So I had my baby and moved back to Utah because I said, I'm not doing this single mom thing all by myself away from my family. And so I had my mom and stepdad move in with me because I needed, I just needed help and just yes. kind of struggled through that and to figure out and pick up the pieces. And I, I was an emotional wreck. And I will say that if it weren't for that child, I probably would have wanted to end my life because, you know, in the church, we are taught eternal marriage. That's Mm -hmm. all that matters. And when we come from that perspective of, hey, if you screw this up, (laughs) you know, what point is there in going on? I felt like my entire foundation had been pulled out from underneath me because here I had been active, trying to do what was right. And there's still no guarantee, right? Got a divorce. And then I said, okay, Heavenly Father, I know I'm supposed to have a spouse, a husband. I know my daughter is supposed to have a father. Mm -hmm. And I just, there's some things that I know, 
that I just like know in my being. And I knew this and I saw this picture of, of the three of us in my mind. And he had this like smiley face because I didn't know what he looked like. And I was looking for direction. And then I got it. And that direction was um, a direct prompting to me that said, put an ad in the classifieds. Whoa. <laughs> and I was like, you have got to be kidding me. Because it's one thing to do like online dating, right? <laughs> but back in the day, the classifieds, you had to be like pretty desperate. That was how I took it. <laughs> and, and and for our younger listeners, the classifieds was in the newspaper. It was called the personals. Yep. That The section was the classifieds was the personals. Mm-hmm. And there was... Women seeking men or men seek. This sounds so antiquated. Oh yes, you know we're not that old, but <laughs> but uh, I remember very well. Yes, and and you'd pay by the word. Yes, you know, and you would put this ad that here's what I'm looking for. Exactly. So tell us about your classifier. So it was so funny. It's like so embarrassing, but <laughs> oh, I love it so much. Lark, this is my favorite thing. <laughs> but it, I, it was we were set up by God, and that's all I can say about that. You know, I just said that I was um, a divorced, and there's these acronyms, you know. Is like D for divorced, W for white. Yeah. Um, and I put, I was well-educated, professional woman. That because I, you paid by the letter. Yes, yes, the yes. You so, small, letter, so you did as small as possible, as possible. Right. And that I, uh, I was well-traveled. I was professional, well-educated. And that I had a daughter, a young daughter. I had dark hair and green eyes, right? Because you have to put all those things. And, and I put that in there. And um, he was the first one to call. And I and I had several people call, you know, and I realized very quickly that you you can't date everybody out there, right? Because right. that's confusing and that's not good either. But um, our first date was in April, and I found out that he he was also a convert, um, born and raised in New Orleans, mm. and uh, was Catholic, but had converted. And here's the interesting story: is that he was in the military as his part time job, but he had he was in officer training school in Oklahoma, met. Uh, a young woman there who was who was living in Oklahoma on the base with her parents. Her her father was uh, a colonel, and they were from Spanish Fork. Mm. He ended up my my current husband Stephen ended up marrying over time. You know, marrying this young woman who was from Utah, inactive LDS. They lived outside New Orleans near, near his mother, and he felt that religion was important. So whether they went to the Catholic Church or the Mormon Church, he didn't care. But they would go every mm. Sunday. And he would, he, a Catholic, would take her to the Mormon church because that's where they decided to go. They would go, and and he told me this, that she would show up in her short, short miniskirt and they would <laughs> go to church. He had the missionaries come several times. He had two two different, you know, um, sets of missionaries that taught him all of the gospel. And it just wasn't a thing for him. Until after a couple years of marriage, his wife said, graduated from school down there and said, I'm going home to mama. Mm. And suddenly, you know, he had his wake up call. And he, I have to give him credit for this. He was really committed to his marriage. He said, okay, I put his house up for rent, quit his job, got a job in Utah and moved up to Utah to try to work it out, which it didn't happen, did not work out. But during the time that he was up in Utah... He, he shows up in a ward, you know, and, and the bishop is so excited. He wants to give him a calling, calls him in and says, hey, would you like a calling? He goes, well, do you think I should be a member first? 
So once again, <laughs> he gets great. another set of missionaries and he gets baptized. And and it didn't work out with, with the wife, but he's in Utah. I'm back in Utah. We live within two wow. miles of each other. Oh, wow. And we never would have met if I hadn't put that classified ad because he had no family, no real yeah, friends, you know. No network. His idea was the classifieds. That's where you you would date, right? That's what he thought. I love it. And that's what I was told. And so, you know, we've had our ups and downs. And you can imagine both our spouses left us. And so we we both have very fiery type personalities. I'm sure. But um, it's sort of the path that we needed to take to get together. And wow. And then how many children do you have together now? So so he ended up adopting our, our oldest daughter, Sky, wonderful. Uh, so we had to be married a year, and then he officially adopted her. Mm-hmm. Um, she's the he's the only father that she's ever known. That's Beautiful. all she's ever wanted. She knows she's adopted. She knows yeah. the whole story, but that's it. And he and his mother, his his father had died by then, but he and his mother took on my daughter like there mm. was like it was his own biological. You would never know the difference. She even looks like him. <laughs> you know, it's kind of so weird. Um, and then together, a couple years after we were married, we had a son, Christian. Mm-hmm. And then we had another daughter a year after, uh, Victoria. And Victoria is a testament that you can get pregnant while you're nursing. Oh, and my. I had had such a hard time getting pregnant with the other two that yeah. I really didn't think much about it. And she came, they were 13 months apart, and that was that was kind of shocking. But um, they've been a joy to us. And then uh, just over three years ago, um, my husband got a call about three and a half years ago from a young man, 27, in, in uh, Louisiana. And he said, I think you're my daddy. What? <laughs> Mark, your story has so many twists and turns. It does. Wow. <laughs> I know. I feel like this could be like a soap opera. And uh, it was. Stephen was his daddy. Remember, he Stephen grew up totally different, right? right he had a complete course. different set of, of way values and the way that they work. But um, 27-year-old son, not only that, but this son was married. He had three daughters and a, <laughs> and a boy on the way. And uh, I will tell you that that has been so wonderful and it's been a huge blessing because, you know, some people might look at that and say, well, shocking, how could you accept that or whatever? And I'm like, you know what? I see God's hand yeah. in him bringing this family to us. Um, and I told Stephen when this happened, because Stephen could sort of deer in the headlights look like, oh my gosh, like how is this going to come out? You know, what is Lark going to think? And I said, you know what, Stephen? This doesn't happen very often mm. in the LDS community. And when it does, most people don't talk about it, right? It's very hush-hush. Sure. And I said, however, I address this is how people are going to see it. If I don't talk about it, you know, as the wife, if I don't talk about it, then people will be like, oh, we don't talk about it. But if I come out and I did that on Facebook, I totally was open and said, hey, we're expecting we've got an adult son and this is what happened. And it's like an elf story. People will be fine with it. Yeah. And they were, and they were just like, that's amazing. I love it. These are kind of fun twists and turns, some of them that have happened along the way. But about five years ago, your life took a huge dramatic turn. We've talked a lot about your father. Yes. Uh, tell us what happened five years ago. So just just barely over five years ago, he took his own life. And it was a very strange situation because 
I had pretty much known that he was going to end his life, that mm. he would be the one that took his life. Because for years he had talked about it, you know, the whole suicide ideation, it almost got so heavy, you know, with, with him just being unable to cope and be around the family. He wanted to be around the family, but then he couldn't stand to be around the family and just very dark, depressive thoughts. Um, we had this conversation years before he died about, you know, how, he, he was planning to end it all type thing. At some point, it was just going to be too much. And I really didn't know how to handle all of this, you know, all that he's giving me. And sometimes he would get help from a therapist or he'd try to be on medication. It would work. It wouldn't work. And um, finally, he was in a car accident in January uh, 2014. And uh, it was like the last straw. He did not die from that car accident. He pulled out a gun and shot himself. I think it was the last straw that he just couldn't cope with anything else. That was after the... the, the yes. He was help. in the car accident and the person saw him pull out the gun and... So it happened at the car accident. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh. And and uh, I didn't know this at the time either, but I had his medical power of attorney. So if you do that to somebody, please tell them in advance. I got a phone call from my brother-in-law that said, um, your father is on life support at the hospital. You have the medical power of attorney. You need to come right now. And I just, there were things that had to be done. And as the oldest, I had to do them. And you have to remember, this wasn't just the first time. I had been doing everything as the oldest all my life. Yeah, You know, given some heavy burdens as a child to take care of my, my siblings. And so when the doctor said, okay, it, a decision needs to be made, all of the siblings, or everybody that was in that room turned and looked at me. And I just said, it needs to be done. And um, and so a couple of sisters were, were almost distraught, sobbing, weeping. They, they would sure. not have been able to do that. Yeah. And I just went into that task mode and, and put the emotions away. And yet I didn't realize how badly it affected me because mm. my father was emotionally distanced from us, from all of us kids. Yeah. And I did not realize that, that there was still a deep emotional tie there. And I could not talk about a suicide. My best friends didn't know that he died by suicide. I just said he was in a car accident. I couldn't, I could not physically say that he had shot himself. Mm. And so I carried, kind of carried that heavy stigma and that burden, and I couldn't talk about it. I was so embarrassed and ashamed. And what I didn't realize until later is that from that January until May, I went into a dark hole. Mm. Uh, as my father's executor, I had to go to meetings. Sure. I had to, to take notes, and I had to make decisions. And I remember going to a meeting, and, I, and afterwards, the next day, I came out, and I looked at my, my notes, and I said, that's my handwriting? But I don't remember being in the meeting, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do with these notes. And, you know, as somebody who feels like, you know, I'm intelligent, I can take care of things, sure. to have these, like, black holes in your memory, it, it was hard. This is so major. I mean, Lark, this is just, it's, it's so heavy and so major. During that time, you know, maybe the, the first year after, I can only imagine the, the, the gamut of emotions that you went through. Mm -hmm. There's going to be sadness, pain, guilt, sorrow, all these things. What was the role of church and what was the role of the gospel during that time? I had to look at it and say, 
you know, we have we have such this idea about suicide, and that in the former days that these people were damned. Yeah. And I I began to look at it in a different light, and I began to have a lot of compassion right. for someone who was hurting so badly that they just wanted to end the pain. Mm. And they would do it however they could because that's all that they could think of is that they were in pain. And this pain wasn't like something where you could go to the doctor and you get sewn up and you get a pill and the pain goes away eventually. This was a pain that went on and on and on for most of my father's life. And I think he just was like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. I began to have just compassion at a different level and thinking, there's so many things we don't know. Mm. about God's plan yeah. that that we maybe need to step back from and not say that we're the judge. Yeah, yeah. And thankfully, you know, I think culturally, we're coming around to yes. that pretty fast. Yes. Getting, uh, having members of the Quorum of the Twelve talk openly about yes. mental health from the pulpit during general conference. Mm-hmm. We couldn't have imagined that 20 years ago. No. You know, you know when Elder Holland did that, it began to be like, oh, we can talk about this, right? Right. And then um, Elder Renlund talked about suicide. Um, he did that in a in a, a film that the church did that, that was released. You mm. can Google that. That was very healing for me. I bet. So this is, uh, you know, and I can't imagine, this happens in succession with an unimaginable tragedy. I want to talk about Christian, but I want to talk about Christian first before we talk about what happened a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Tell us about Christian. So Christian was my son who was very alpha male. And in the household, his idea was that dad was the top pinnacle and he, as early as three years old, was the next in line. <laughs> oh my, that's a handful. And so he and I fought, argued probably almost every day mm. of his life. He was a very difficult child for me. He was, he was brilliant. And by the age of six, he could argue like a seasoned attorney. <laughs> and he could tell me why I was wrong and he was right. And usually he was right. Like, usually mom was wrong after he laid out his argument. But, you know, I was exhausted. My husband had been deployed to Afghanistan at that time. And I was just looking at him and saying, son, just just please go do it. Please. I just, <laughs> I don't need an argument. And it was just this hard thing where he was a sweet boy to everyone but mother. Mm. And and it was a hard, hard life. And I remember when he was 15, almost 16, right at that age, he's going into um, be a sophomore. And I'm walking down the hall one afternoon, and I am thinking about my favorite subject. And that favorite subject is how this boy is causing me so much problems. And he, how he is the source of every problem in my life. And I got another prompting by God that let me know that he's not the problem, you are. Whoa. I stopped in my tracks and I was like, well, I don't know how that can be because I'm the adult (laughs) and I'm perfect and I know all the right answers. Right. And then I had this picture open up in front of my eyes and it was a picture of me and this boy Christian in the preexistence. And he said, mom, you are going to have a lot of, you're going to have a hard time being Christ-like, but I am going to help you. Whoa. And then I'm like, okay. 
Yeah. And I began to realize that I needed to treat him in a different way. Instead of being so militant, we were a military family, instead of being so militant, I needed to maybe soften up. And I and I softened up a little bit, but still there there was there was still some friction there. Yeah. And then uh when he was growing up, when he was a teenager especially, did you start to see signs of mental health concerns? You know what? When he was 15, almost 16, uh, his father's having his conversation as he's starting his sophomore year, you know, son, uh, you, you need to, now your grades matter. You know, if you want to get into mechanical engineering, like you've always wanted to do your, your entire life, like I said, he, he was brilliant. Yeah. And, uh, and just, you need to buckle down, you need to focus and kind of putting a lot of pressure, you know, and that's, once again, that's a hard thing. As parents, we want to push our kids, we want to help them reach their potential, but at what point do you push them too hard? Yeah. And because my husband had been trained in the military about suicide, he saw my son disengage from the conversation. Mm. And he he had the presence of mind to ask Christian, are you feeling suicidal? Wow. And that kind of surprised me because, you know, it's not something I would have said. Yeah, you hadn't picked up on that. No. And, and uh, Christian said, yes, I am. And that's really important is when you see your kids struggling, or even if they're not struggling, you know, and you just kind of see some strange behavior, you don't say, are you going to hurt yourself? Because remember, we talked about my dad, people that are suicidal, they're not thinking, I'm, oh, I'm going to go out and hurt myself. They're thinking, I am going to go stop this pain. End the pain. Yes. Yeah, right. And right. so Stephen came in from outside. They were out on the front porch. He said, Christian tells me he's feeling suicidal. Will you go? Please stay with him. I am going to call the army suicide hotline and get an appointment for him, which we got him in the next day. And I, how old was Christian? I, Christian was six, was 15, almost 16. Okay, got it. Now here's another thing to think of is that when someone in your family dies by suicide, there, the chances of another family member increases by 50%. Oh, I did not know that. I didn't know that either. So that, that was a red flag that when my father died, I should have Wished I had known that, right? right? Right. And then, um, so I'm talking to my son, and I'm even though my father had had taken his life, I just can't get my head around this. Like, would you really do this? It wasn't like I was doubting him, but I just could but not that was comprehend. Your baby. You don't, yeah, you don't see it that way, exactly. And so we we kind of talked. I'm like, are are you feeling suicidal? He says, yes. I'm like, are you going to be okay through the night? You know, we'll we'll get you in to see a therapist tomorrow. I'll come with you. Is that okay? And and. And will you be safe for the night? And he said, yes, I, I promise I'll be safe. I'm like, okay. And and I took him the next day and um, took him into the therapist and they talked and found out that he had a plan, which once again shocked me. And And here's the thing that you can have a plan for a long time. And when you see somebody that's suicidal and they've, they're kind of down and then they start to feel better, it's because they've come up with a plan and they're, they're ready to ex- uh, execute it and so they're feeling better, not because they are better, but because mm. they have an out. They can see the end. Yes. Ugh. And here is one of the largest regrets that I have. So the, I took Christian to the therapist every week for two months. He then told me as a 16-year-old, Mom, I'm good. We're fine. I'm, I'm doing all better now. And I took him at his word. Never thought to have another conversation about his mental health after that. From the time he was 16 to 19, I never thought about it because he seemed okay. He was still, you know, somewhat argumentative with me and we, we got through some stuff, but he, he was 
um, active. He had social life. He had hobbies. He was going to the University of Utah in the mechanical engineering program, you know, what he had always wanted to do. He was not a kid that you would look at and say, oh, yeah, that's the kid that's got problems. But here's the one thing in talking with other parents who've lost a child. um, These children, they're they're empathetic. They feel things more mm. than maybe other people do, which makes their emotions harder to handle. They're taking on everybody else's emotions. And, and because of my father's bipolar, I would always watch my kids for any signs a little bit more. Um, and I didn't really see that. But in looking back, I used to joke that my boy was more sensitive than my daughter's and wasn't that funny. Mm. And now I realize that wasn't a joke. That was actually a sign, you know, that when somebody is, is more sensitive, that they they could have a tendency to feel pain more deeply. Mm. So this leads to two years ago, mm-hmm. and your son does take his own life. He does. And once again, like I said, that came out of the blue because the so conversation... So there was nothing leading up to this that you can remember? Nothing that, that we would have identified as, oh, there it is. Uh, what, what happened was he... He came home late, like 11 o'clock at night on a school night, which was totally typical. He, he usually stayed um, at the lab, you know, and trying to – all this math and science that he was taking. And, and he would he would study. He was trying to understand what was going on. Uh, he came home that night at 11, and, and my husband happened to be up. And, you know, once again, my husband thought this would be a great time for a parent-child yeah. teaching moment, right? Which – the nighttime is never the the best time, honestly, right? right? Just about anything. Sure. No, <laughs> um, there were three things I think that happened that all came together that night, and and once again, it's just like the last straw. Like my father, right? You know, the last straw. Um, Christian had been in a car accident two weeks earlier. It was there was the big snowstorm in the spring. You know, he was he's 19. He's driving his his hot rod car. He he gets too close, and he ends up rear-ending someone mm. because of the snow. And so he's having to take care of, of that. We're kind of giving some tough love and that you need to work with the insurance company. You need to take care of this. And uh, and and you need to come up with a deductible, which he had the money in the bank. So, yeah. but still that there was, there was that. So he was kind of dealing with that. And my husband pointed out that with that and the speeding tickets that he had earlier, he was probably going to lose his license, Mm. which he would then need to make alternative plans to get from South Jordan to the University of Utah, right? Not impossible, but... No, but that's a burden. But but yes, it's just one more thing that he's he's kind of thinking of. And then it's it's now midterms, and spring and fall tend to be a higher time for suicide. Mm. And when students, it's oftentimes around... The, the midterms. And my my husband said to him, what are your grades? You've been hemming and hawing about this for the last couple of weeks. You're not telling me. I need to know. What are your grades? And Christian said, I'm, I'm struggling. You know, classes are getting harder. I'm getting B's and C's and it's harder. And and then my husband said, you know, well, we, you know, we help you out financially, but if, if you drop those grades drop, then you have to, you know, our 
our carrot is that you have to now come up with more money, right? So yeah. if you keep your grades up, then then we'll pay more of it. And so we, my husband said, well, you'll have to work through the summer and you'll have to come up with, you know, X amount of dollars, thousands of dollars to then pay for this, which he could do. It wasn't impossible. This is all very reasonable. I mean, yes. this sounds like every conversation every parent. Yes. every parent has. This exactly. is not out of the ordinary. And and that's the thing that's hard, right? Yeah. As, as parents, we're like, well, how do you know if you've pushed too much? And then I think the fact that Stephen and Christian were best friends. Mm. They were very close. And I think that Christian felt that he had let his father down. Mm. And I think he just was like, why, why, why keep going? Why keep struggling? Why continue? Yeah, I keep disappointing you. Yes, I, I just can't do it. And um, Stephen and I both have concealed carry. And our children have been raised around guns. They know how to use guns. And... He was 19. He was old enough to carry his own gun if he wanted to. Yeah. And uh, my husband went to bed, and Christian went and got the gun, and um, did not go to bed that night. And we did not find out until the next morning. I went off to teach a class early in the morning, so I didn't know anything was wrong. And I'm in the class, and a police officer comes to tell me. And I couldn't believe it. I was in denial. I was like, you've got the wrong family, you know, like, this is a terrible joke, like, you're wrong. And my husband was the one who found Christian. And my husband is a battle-hardened army colonel. Uh, Up until that point, I had seen him cry twice in our 21 years of marriage. Mm. And one of those was when his mother died. My husband cried for three days straight. His heart was broken. Yeah. What does the first week look like, Lark? What's that? What's that? It was a lot of denial. I There was anger. I will admit that. There was anger towards my son. Um, I, I couldn't cry for a week. Me personally. Here's my husband sobbing 24-7, and I can't even cry because I'm so angry with this boy that we had struggled. Our relationship had struggled. And the the one good thing I thought about it was that at least we had had a conversation just a couple weeks before where he and I went out to dinner and we were able to have a very honest conversation. It wasn't until a week after he died that I saw a picture of him when he was six years old mm. as my little boy that I, I broke down and sobbed. And I cried for this little boy. Yeah. And we went to the funeral home to find a casket, you know, to do all these things that as a parent, you never think you will do. Yeah. And just the shock. And I immediately wanted to go where I had gone with my father. Don't want to talk about it. The stigma, the shame, this is awful. You know, what, how can I ever recover? And I felt myself sinking into that black hole. Mm. I felt myself going spiraling down. And I realized that if I went into that black hole, when I came out, my husband might not be there. My other kids might not be there because they were, they were a mess. They, we were all just struggling. Where did this come from? How did this happen? Why didn't we see it? Yeah. And, um, I was the one that sort of had to hold us together and 
I felt like I was carrying the whole family, which was really hard. And I had to rely on my relationship with God that I had developed through those years of infertility, through the years of of being abandoned by a first spouse and not knowing what would happen, but having to completely rely on God. And I, when that happened, the thought that came to me, you know, we were talking about Gethsemane, but the earlier, the thought that came to me was the line about Jesus as a man acquainted with grief. Mm. And I just thought, a woman acquainted with grief. I mean, my life. Mark, your life has, has been. been so it's been crazy. crazy. And it's, in many ways, it's just been so hard. And yet, I look at how God has intervened in my life to bless me and my family. And like I mentioned about our son Caleb from Louisiana, he and his family came into our life about a year before Christian passed away. They were involved in our lives enough to know Christian. And after Christian passed away that that day, Stephen said, I need Caleb to be here. Mm-hmm. And Caleb flew up for the, the funeral. And then we, we actually um, interred Christian's body in Stephen's family tomb in New Orleans. So the week after, we had double funerals. Yeah, and the wow. week after, we went down to New Orleans and, and the rest of the grandkids were there and our daughter-in-law, Diana. But I will tell you, it's been two years um, and two days since Christian yeah. passed away. Um, those grandkids and that family has saved us. We would have fallen apart as a family. We just wouldn't have been able to talk or, or sometimes even spend time together. It would have been sometimes too hard. And often you need someone else to come in and change the dynamic. We we have these four grandkids, and they are what has helped healed heal our family. Wow. Then I also felt prompted um, from some friends who called me and said, my child is struggling. I need help. What can I do? And I began to realize that I could not hide. Hmm. And, and within just six days of my son's passing, I started posting on social media. And the same day that my son died, our... Um, our elders quorum president came over. He had been our former stake in the stake presidency. He'd known our family, you know, Christian's entire life. And he came over to give a blessing to Stephen and me. And he gave Stephen his blessing. And then he gave me my blessing. And he gave this blessing of comfort. And then he stopped. And he said, Lark, you have a very important work to do. A very important work to do. And I'm thinking, like, work, like, work, work? You know, I didn't, I didn't know. I'm like, that's so inappropriate, you know. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, within less than a week, I knew what that work was. Mm. And I have completely dedicated myself to talking about suicide prevention. How can we heal our relationships before it gets to that point? Trying to wake parents up to the reality that it's, it's reality. Yeah. Don't be like me. Don't think, oh, it's out there. It's not in my home because it, it absolutely can be in your home and you yeah. don't even know that there are problems. And I just feel like it's my calling. It is all that my life is dedicated sure. to now. And so this leads you on this journey. And in a second, we're going to talk about this beautiful book that uh, you brought me that, that I have sitting in front of me. But I have a few questions for, for our listeners. And I say for our listeners, our main listener being me. These are questions <laughs> that I have. Sure. Uh, first of all, you know, when, when there's a tragedy 
And I don't know that there's a greater tragedy than suicide. It's it's on a different level. It is because there's so many unanswered questions. Right. What could I have done differently? The the grief, the guilt, the regret. Right. And when like when someone gets cancer, you don't think I could have prevented that. Suicide has so many questions, way more questions than answers. But in any time of grief, what was helpful? I, I feel like when, when I see somebody go through tragedy and trauma, especially on this scale, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. I freeze. You've been through this. What was helpful from friends, family, and church members? You know, just to know they were praying for us, because a lot of times they really couldn't do anything. Mm. They, they, our ward was amazing. And uh, we... We felt so much love and acceptance. There was no judging. There was no comments about, oh, your son's going to hell. You know, nothing like that. They they would share stories with us about our son, of interactions with him, and that brought me joy to, to remember him. Um, they would write us cards or drop some things off, right? They provided us with meals. And at first, we didn't want to take meals. You know, we're the family. We are we totally... We don't need that. Yes. Yeah. And... I they they actually forced the meals on us, which in retrospect was good because we stopped we stopped doing everything. We just stopped functioning. We my husband lost fifteen pounds in one week. He lost another fifteen over the next two weeks. Wow. And we just stopped functioning. If people had not brought us food, we we would have had maybe cereal and occasional piece of toast. We didn't care about like the the things right. that happen. And and so to have people reach out in love and understanding and just, you know, you don't even have to do anything. You just show up and, and hug them and cry. Yeah. I think sometimes it creates a paralysis, which is the wrong thing. Doing nothing or avoiding mm-hmm. is, is definitely the wrong thing. I have no doubt that we have listeners who are hearing your story and maybe one of their children is coming to mind. Or maybe it's a niece, a nephew, mm-hmm. a friend, someone in the ward. And none of us want to acknowledge that. None of us want to think about that. But if someone's coming to mind right now for one of our listeners, what advice do you have? How do you proceed this way? So what I would suggest is if it's if it's actually your own children, right, you can Google um, free suicide prevention resources. There, there are several things out there. What's in your community? What can you connect with right away? Um, I would... Try to find some counseling, some something like that. Not just the school counselor, but somebody that you know you can actually have them talk to or find some kind of connection. Don't ignore it. Um, what I would also say is, let's say it's a niece or a nephew or something like that, or or a child in your neighborhood. Reach out, send them a text. Hey, I've been thinking about you. You know, you're so mm. awesome. I appreciate you so much, and and just knowing that you're here makes me happy and just something about them so that they know somebody cares. Like I told you about my Swedish father that, that he actually cared to ask me about my day and and what was going on. That's important. Um, I heard through the grapevine that uh, one of the young women in our ward was struggling and um, should have seen it because it was quite dramatic as a, you know, as a 14, 15 year old and, and kind of started changing the way she did her makeup. And so it was a, a drastic change, right? No, I didn't really think much of it. Oh, teenager, right? Yeah. But then a couple years later, I hear through the grapevine that she's struggling. And so when I saw her at church just a couple weeks ago, um, 
after church when we were outside, <laughs> I went up and I, and I gave her a hug. And I said, I care about you. Didn't have to go into anything. Didn't have to say, hey, I hear you're struggling, you know. Yeah. I just looked at her and said, I care about you. Mm. It's those simple things. I also love your message. Uh, and I can't get it out of my head now. This was at the beginning of the conversation. To say, are you suicidal? Yes. You know, that, that, that I think that we are scared. Mm-hmm. Because I think as a parent, you know, eight children... What if they say yes? So maybe if I don't ask the question, it doesn't really exist. Let's pretend like this doesn't exist. And I, and I totally understand that, right? Um, what I had learned right before my son died was that we, as parents, want to put blinders on. And we want to think things and we want to force the kids to act a certain way. And I had to allow them and have a very open conversation with them and say, I am sorry that our household has been so strict. I would like you to give me some feedback and maybe suggest some rules that you would like changed. Mm. One of those rules was, Mom, we don't like you forcing us to go to church every week. Mom, we don't like you forcing us to go to seminary. Mm. You know, as a an active LDS parent, <laughs> I don't want to hear that. And And they gave me some feedback about some things and then... I talked to Stephen, who was out of town on a work trip. And so about just two weeks before my son took his life, we were able to have a very open conversation about what worked, what didn't work, and and we could change some rules and allow them a little more agency, right, in what they were doing. And yeah. and I, I look back on that and I thought, gee, would I have rather have had my blinders on thinking that, oh, rose-colored glasses, or is it better to know the reality. Yeah. Because the reality is what is real, whether yeah. or not we want whether it. Whether right? or not you know it, whether or not right. you're told it, whether or not you hear it. Right. And it's painful to hear, but then you can do something about it. Exactly. And the other thing is acceptance. We say unconditional love, and yet we hardly ever have unconditional love, mm. especially as parents, right? We want to reward or we want to give happy smiles and pats on the back for kids that do things the way we want them done. Yeah. And they feel that and they know that. Mm. So can we love without condition? Can we look at a child that's difficult and say, I love you anyway, just because you're you and I love you. And you don't have to do or be anything and I'll still love you. And instead of being very uh, dictatorial as a parent, I now parent differently. I now, if my child had come to me as a teenager and said, oh, mom, I got my girlfriend pregnant or I'm pregnant, I would have blown a gasket. I mean, like the, the world would have come to the end, right? Yeah. And now I look at that and think, how would I do it now? Now I would say, okay, you have made some actions. Now there are consequences. Or what if a child comes and says, I'm, I'm gay? You know, what yeah. do you do? Do you just like lose it? Or do you say, okay, so now what does that look like for you? Or what are you planning to do? Because they have to take consequences of their choices in certain ways, right? But can we look at a child and say, I love you just because you're you? Yeah. And, and to create a space and a relationship in which they can come and say, I'm gay, 
in which they can come and say, I'm pregnant or I'm in this yes. situation. Because sometimes creating that is the difficult part. It's, it is. And we think we have it because we've known them since they were two. <laughs> but that's not always the case, right? And what I realized after my son died is that I am not my child's savior. Because I took that on for a long time. Yeah. That if my children make it back to the celestial kingdom, it's because I have kicked and prodded and pushed them there. And when he died, I realized that that's not my role. And I had to give that up, and it felt so yeah. freeing. Mm. And my role as a parent is to love and guide these children. It is, I am not their savior. There's that's another beautiful. savior for that. Well, this all leads us to learning to breathe again. Yes. <laughs> Let's talk about learning to breathe again. Uh, that was a hard book to write. Um, I felt like I needed to write it. Uh, I wrote it for parents who were struggling with their relationships with their kids to hopefully give them some insight into, yeah, wish I had known this back then. And then also for those who are grieving, whether it's through a suicide or just a loss of whatever, how do you move forward when you yeah. feel like your life Everything that you've believed in or that you thought was holding you together is is completely washed away. How do you do that? And it's it's through having a purpose and a mission that's bigger than the pain. Mm. And I feel like I have been given certain experiences throughout my life so that I am now in a position where I can help other people choose to stay on this planet. And I've had a very spiritual experience where I know that my son is helping people wherever he can choose to stay. Beautiful. Because it's so important. And by writing that book, there was healing. By telling my son's story, I am closer to Christian now than I was two years ago. Wow. And I feel him with me whenever I share his story. Mm. That's so beautiful. People want to buy the book. Where where can they find it? So you can find it on Amazon or my website, larkdeangalley.com. and it's um, learning to breathe again, choosing to heal after losing a loved one to suicide. Yeah, and and I highly recommend your website. It's beautifully put together. There are a lot of resources there uh, for people, and a, and a great place to get started. These are uncomfortable things for people to think about and talk about, but I think you would agree that let's do it now, not then. Exactly. You know, like I said, we think that it's out there and it is not, especially I feel I had felt such an urgency to get this book out, such an urgency, like a pushing from God, you know, like you have got to get it out now. And I see now that my son died in 2019 and I wrote it during 2019 and at the beginning of 2020. And then a year ago we had the lockdowns. Yeah. People are experiencing more isolation this last year, 2020. And even now, as we're still into the semi-quarantine, right? They're feeling isolated. They're feeling hopeless. Uh, young adults are experiencing huge amounts of suicide. Yeah, There's uncertainty. Now more than ever, we need to have this message. And now I understand why God was pushing me to get this book out so right. that people could have some insights into what's maybe going on in some of their children's lives. Well, I am so excited to read it and to understand better because these are things that I think we all need to get get our arms around and get our heads around. It's real, it exists, and God bless you for this this work, Lark. We're going to wrap things up with the question we ask all of our guests, and that is, Lark, what does uh, being a member of the church mean to you? 
Oh, it means. And with my son's passing, it's more reality than than ever before. It means that I can be with my Savior and return to my Father in Heaven. It means that there is a plan. And even though I don't always understand the plan, I don't always like the plan, there is a plan. And I can be instrumental in helping our Father and our brother, Jesus Christ, bring more people towards them than, than I have fulfilled my small part in what I was meant to do. Wow. The book is called Learning to Breathe Again. She is a mother, a wife, an advocate now, and she is out there doing tremendous work. Lark Dean Galley, thank you for sharing your Latter-day Life with us. Thank you. And my special thanks to my new friend, Lark Galley. I was so touched. You can probably hear a couple times I was very emotional as we were recording. And uh, to hear her heartbreaking story and yet all of her faith and her finding joy in this life through everything just gave me so much hope. And I'm just grateful. Please go check out the book. I've started reading it. It is amazing. You will not want to put it down. It's just incredible. So please go check that out. And thank you again to Lark. Uh, This week in my Latter-day life uh, was an interesting week. About two and a half weeks ago, I was down in my office in San Diego. And I I tend to go there every other week or every third week and just spend a couple days there. Otherwise, I work from home. But I was down there and I was training a new employee And one of our engineers came into the room, and he and I started talking. Uh, His name's Johnny, and we hadn't caught up for a while, so it was really nice. He wanted to meet the new employee, and we all sat and talked. And Johnny and I really share a love of music and a lot of the same bands. In fact, our friendship kind of really struck up one day when he walked in the office, and he was wearing a concert shirt from one of my favorite bands, but they're pretty obscure And uh, we immediately connected and bonded. Johnny's just a great man and uh, father of two, loving husband. And he's just one of those guys who just everybody loves him. And so as we sat there and talked a couple weeks ago, uh, we decided that we would get back to concerts this year. It's what we were looking forward to most when uh, the pandemic winds down. And there's a place in San Diego called uh, Humphreys by the Bay beautiful place to see a concert. And we agreed that since we're both such big music fans, that this summer we would find a good concert and we would go together. Uh, The next day I flew home in the morning. And then the day after that, uh, I got a phone call. They let me know that Johnny had taken the day off the day before and had gone to hit some golf balls at his, uh, which is one, one of his favorite things to do down at his golf club. And that, unfortunately, Johnny had suffered a a massive heart attack while golfing, and that he had passed away. This was quite shocking. It was literally the day after he and I were making plans to go to a concert. On Saturday of this past week, I went to the memorial service for him, also down in Southern California. And I was amazed at what a beautiful service it was. Johnny was a very devout Baptist And uh, his pastor was there and gave a beautiful sermon. There was some really pretty music and and just a great way to honor Johnny. But all I kept thinking was, did did I tell Johnny how much I love him? 
did Johnny know? I mean, Johnny knew I wanted to go to a concert with him. But all throughout this whole thing, I was thinking, did he just think I like concerts? Did he know that it's that I love him and that I love spending time with him and that he's my friend? Did he know these things? And I found myself yearning if I only had five more minutes with Johnny. You know, I just wish that I knew. And sometimes, you know, I've lost friends or loved ones who we knew that they were going to go because of terminal illness or whatever the situation was. But with Johnny, it was out of the blue. He was, in fact, (laughs) as I'm recording this, it's actually Johnny's 59th birthday today. He was 58 years old when he died. He was in good health. This was really unexpected. And all I wanted during that service was five more minutes with Johnny. And I, I know this episode seems like a lot of it is about uh, death, but this is really about life uh, because I committed as something that I just want to do. I want to share more love with people. I want to tell people what they mean to me. That room was packed with people who just loved Johnny, and they were crying over his loss. Did Johnny know that? Did he know that that many people loved him so much? And I think it's incumbent on each one of us, because we don't know when people are going to go, that we freely give that love, that we share that love with all around us, and that we tell people, and we let them know what they mean to us. We let them know that they're important. We don't wait until it's too late, because I didn't get that five more minutes with Johnny. Now, here's the beautiful part, though, and much like Lark's message, I will get five more minutes with Johnny someday, and I look forward to that. I'm so grateful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine this pain, not knowing what's happening when we lose people we love? I love the fact that we have the gospel. I just love the gift of the atonement and that we're able to go back to God, and especially in times like this. And I'm so grateful for my friend, Johnny. And to all of you, I love you for listening. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you for the beautiful messages and letters you send me. I'm so grateful for it. Thankful to be part of this church. And so thankful for this platform that we have to share all these things. And I'm thankful for my dear friend, Johnny. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in. We really appreciate it. If you want to send us a message, you can email me. It's sean at latterdaylives.com, or you can reach out on Facebook or Instagram. We would love to have you follow us on social media. We do announce all of our episodes there. And I think that's about all we got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great, big, beautiful world out there. Go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>